Good morning, Capshaw. I'm Jessica. Welcome to In The Know. If you are a guest with us today, we are so glad that you're here and are thrilled that you chose to worship with us. If you would just take a brief moment to fill out our virtual connect card by going to capshaw.org slash connect card or by scanning the QR code in the seat back in front of you, we would love the opportunity to get to know you better. Now, let's find out what's going on around campus. It's almost time for our highly anticipated performance of a Capshaw Christmas. There will be two chances to attend, one on Saturday, December the 12th, and then one on Sunday, December the 13th, both beginning at 6.30 p.m. This time of special worship in song and through the spoken word is just what we all need this holiday season. Please share and invite your family and friends to join us for a Capshaw Christmas. You can RSVP at capshaw.org slash events. We hope to see you there. We hope you'll make plans to join us for a special Christmas Eve service on Thursday, December 24th at either 5 or 6.30 p.m. Children are welcome to attend, so please bring your family and worship with us as we celebrate Jesus' birth. Just a quick reminder before we go, there are many things that you can do at capshaw.org. You can find out about general information, upcoming events, as well as give. As always, if you have any questions, you can email the church office at info at capshaw.org. I hope you all have a great day. Now let's get ready to worship. Good morning, church family. Will you please stand with me for the reading of the word? Today we're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we celebrate our Lord full of grace and truth, may the songs minister to your hearts before the message. I count on one thing 
The same God who never fails will not fail me now. He won't fail me now. No waiting. The same God who's never late, bringing all things out. He's working all things out. Yes, I will. Praise the Lord, that's true this morning. You know, I, I think about the day and age we live in, to think about the valleys that we can find ourselves in, and praise God that we serve a living God who is the same today and forevermore will be. Thankful for that this morning as we celebrate. I want to welcome you to service today. If you don't know me, my name is John Kirkpatrick, one of the elders here at Capshaw, and it's just such a joy to worship together. 
I'm thankful that, that God has, has provided a way for his people to continue to minister. Whether you're joining us here in services or if you're joining us online, we're so thankful uh, that you're here with us today. And, uh, you know, that, that's the goal of what we're here to do, is to, to praise the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also look together at his truth, that we can unite together and connect together. And as we do that, we have several ways you can do that, but the primary way is for you to fill out our Connect card. If you're here today, uh, in the seat back pocket is a scan code that you can use. It'll take you directly to our uh, online uh, Connect card. You can fill that out, find out information about Capshaw. You can also do several other things there. You can find out about salvation. If that's something that God is drawing you, His Holy Spirit's working in your life, you can find out about that. If you have a need, if there's things going on in your life that you're thinking, I just wish I could share this with someone, please don't miss that opportunity. You can also get there through our website, capshaw.org slash connectcard, and get there as well. Let's continue our worship. Look forward to Pastor John and uh, the message that we will hear as we come and behold. Let's worship together.
such beautiful stuff this morning. Uh, go ahead and have a seat, church family. So good to see you today. I hope you've had a good week. I've been praying for you this week. I, I, had an, I was interviewed by a college student in Southern California recently for her religion class, and she asked me, uh, she said, what is it that sustains you in preaching? Why do you love to preach, and what is it that excites you? And I said, you know, for me, it's it's being able to tell people week after week good news, good news of who God is and what He's done to save the world. And so for me, the being a, a herald of good news is, uh, is something that great, brings me great delight. Well, this morning, I have to bring you some very bad news, uh, which I hate to do, but um, even though the video, the In the Know video announcement said that Capshaw Academy or Capshaw uh, Christmas is right around the corner, actually, we've had to cancel that this year which I, again, I, I regret to inform you, but uh, late last week, um, we had one of our pastors who tested positive for COVID, and then two other pastors realized that they had spent considerable time in said pastor's office that afternoon, the same day, uh, so they, they have quarantined, so all three, uh, three of our pastors now are uh, self-isolating and quarantining, and that will take us right actually through Sunday, uh, the Saturday and Sunday of Capshaw Christmas. So it's something we hated to do, but we want to continue to be proactive and responsible and, uh, and make sure we're vigilant in, in doing everything we can to, to safeguard and protect. And so um, we are going to show last year's Capshaw Christmas at that same time. So uh, if you have people over and you don't tell them, uh, you know, they, they may not realize. I don't think there's anything real specific to, uh, to this year, but I'm not suggesting any sort of uh, deception or duplicity. I'm just saying uh, we are going to show something. So uh, let's pray together and we will uh, open, our word to, open the Word of God together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the faithful one, uh, that you have revealed yourself to us by your Word. In creation, we see your eternality and your power, and then by your Son, uh, in whom we see uh, your very nature. And Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we consider 
uh, this passage of Scripture, beginning a new series, that you would uh, deepen our faith in you, that you would help us to, uh, to see you as you have revealed yourself to be. Help us, Lord, to put aside any thoughts of the way we think you should be, or help us to, uh, to put aside our imagination, which says, well, I believe God should be like this, and give us the humility and the grace to defer to your own self-revelation and to take great joy and confidence in who you are and who we are to you. Now, Father, we ask that you would minister to us. We pray for those who are exhausted, those who are beaten down, those who are stressed, who are anxious, who are fearful, those who are sick. I think of my uh, three brothers that I, I, I miss and my fellow pastors. I pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them even this morning as they uh, watch online. And I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, you would conform us into the image of your beloved Son, the one in whose name we pray. Uh, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. This is the first week of our new series called Come and Behold, which is an Advent series. And before we get into the text, I want to I ask you to think about something for a moment. I want you to think about any plans that you had this year that have been postponed, rescheduled, reimagined, or altogether canceled. I'm not trying to frustrate you or make you mad or depressed, but I'll have some good news in a minute. But I want you to think about anything that was on your calendar that you said, you know what, we actually can't do this now because of this pandemic. For some, uh, it was very major events in their life. For example, a graduation. Some had uh, high school graduations, college graduations that were uh, that they had hoped would involve their whole family in a big celebration and a lot of people there to witness it, but instead uh, they had to resort to a virtual uh, celebration. This affected my own son, who graduated from college, and uh, for the first time since the Civil War, they had no graduation ceremony, but they only had a virtual uh, experience. Uh, for some, maybe even events more significant than that, for example, a wedding. A wedding that was, again, intended to involve all kinds of family and friends, but had to be, uh, the, the, the wedding list, the invitees had to be really shortened down. This also happened to my son, who had his wedding scheduled in uh, July. He was married, had plans to have 250 people there in this huge uh, event, but instead the, the caterer, the event uh, host said, you can only have 50 people, and there were 38 people that just included family and the uh, bridal party, and so... Uh, that obviously only 12 people could be invited, so that, that was a big stressful thing for them. For some people, their plans have changed in terms of travel schedule or holiday plans or vacation destinies. Uh, for some, uh, maybe uh, sadly, there was a memorial service where uh, you couldn't have it or you had to reduce the number of people. If we think back on this year, we have to say that every single person has been affected. Now, not everybody has been affected in the same way. But no one can say that they remain unaffected by uh, 2020. There's only, the only certain thing about this year has been its uncertainty. Nothing has gone according to our plan. And I think this raises a question that maybe we've never asked before, maybe it's never surfaced before, and that is, if all of our plans have been derailed, then how can we be sure that God's single plan of salvation will not also change? 
Are there events? Are there circumstances? Are there scenarios? Are there illnesses or viruses, whatever, that can cause God to abandon His original plan and actually come up with something new? Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, a passage in Genesis 6, which is a very difficult passage. Um, And you may wonder, what does that actually have to do with Advent or the season of Christmas? Well, we're going to look at, throughout this four-week Advent series, the, the big story of the Bible that we call the meta-narrative, this grand overarching story of the Bible and the significance of Jesus coming, His arrival. The word Advent is, just comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And of course, for those of us in the Christian faith, we know that this is a reference to the arrival of the coming of Jesus. The big story of the Bible is not ultimately about us. It describes the words and acts of a holy and eternal God who is reconciling to Himself a sin-cursed world through the person and work of His Son, Jesus. This is the overarching focus that we see actually from the very beginning. As one uh, scholar, Edmund Clowney, writes, the Old Testament follows God's one great plan for human history and redemption. And the plan is not only from Him, but centers on Him His presence in His incarnate Son. So the birth of Jesus, not not some event in some random uh, historical events, but actually the the single event that was the center of God's one big plan of redemption. But again, in light of what we've experienced this year, it does beg the question, could God ever change His mind and actually adopt a new plan? And of course, that question is exacerbated by the text of Scripture, those passages that we read that suggest that God was actually sorry about a plan that He executed, or that God regretted something that He did, or that God changed His course of action. What do we do with those passages? Now, this morning we're going to do something just a little different. If you've been around our church very long, you know we, we were committed to expositional preaching and Uh, To exposit just means to explain the text, so we work our way through books of the Bible 90 plus uh, percentage of the time. Uh, But this morning we're going to do what I I call sort of an expositional slash theological sermon. I want to look at a passage of Scripture and then I want to go from that and kind of extrapolate some some theological insights into the very character and nature of God. We're going to look at really is what we might call, theologians call, God's impassibility. The fact that God cannot be acted upon. He does not change. He's not coerced or influenced or manipulated in such a way that He would abandon His plan. So let's look at the text together. Uh, I'll just read the whole section, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Here reads the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that The daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then verse 5, we'll spend most of our time here in 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So it's a couple of thousand years, uh, or more actually, before Jesus uh, would arrive on the earth. And we go back to the time of Noah, and the earth is starting to populate at a very rapid pace. When you live to be eight or 900 years old, and there's no internet to surf or TV to watch, uh, there's a lot of time to make babies. And that was what was going on. They were making a lot of babies. People were increasing in number and multiplying. Uh, and even the so-called sons of God, verse 2, were engaged in this, which could have a number of different interpretations on who these folks were. Some say they were fallen angels. Others say they were pious men from the line of Seth. Uh, I tend to, to side with the second interpretation, but it doesn't really matter. What's going on here is the, word, the, the earth is, is being populated, and people are expanding and multiplying and becoming more and more crowded. And then you have, the in verse 4, the Nephilim. Again, some mystery there, uh, but these were likely uh, the great legendary men of courage who had established, uh, garnered a reputation as those fierce warriors uh, who could not be threatened. And what happens is, through this rapid increase in population, things would turn ugly very quickly. The self-centeredness of fallen man reached a fever pitch, and evil would flourish. And God, of course, who is perfect and holy and in whom there is no darkness but only light, He cannot stand evil, so He says, I'm not going to allow man to live these long lives anymore. He said He shortened man's lifespan to around 120 years. And this was not a spiteful act by God. This was not vindictive. This is simply God's response to man's pervasive evil. In fact, the text says, When the Lord saw how great man's wickedness had become, he was grieved and sorry that he made them. Now, this presents a very significant problem, doesn't it? How could a sovereign God who is, has exhaustive foreknowledge, who, is, who has decreed everything that will come to pass, how could he ever be sorry about something? How could he ever regret any sort of action that he did? In fact, uh, you know, we think about this and we know people, you know people, and I, I know people who are very proud in saying they don't regret anything they've ever done. I don't regret anything. We hear this all the time. In fact, here's a guy that's so committed to that philosophy, he had it tattooed on his arm. He just should have had somebody uh, use spell check first. He's a, no regrets, he says. No regrets, he says proudly. Um, we know people, again, who are, you know, we are sinful, fallen people like us, and they say, I have no regrets about anything. How could a sovereign and holy God Say, I regret something. If sinful people profess no regrets, again, how could God say that He's sorry or even sad or even greed? One theologian says, perhaps the most difficult biblical dilemma for those of us who affirm the sovereignty of God is the problem of how to make sense of the various divine affections spoken of in Scripture. In other words, you know, we say God is sovereign, what we're saying is, um, we're saying that Nothing happens small or large that has not been decreed by God, whether it's a hurricane that sweeps through South Alabama, whether it's a backache that you have or knee pain that won't go away, the loss of a job, the sale of a home, 
um, a virus that pops up, the spread of a virus, we say nothing happens outside of God's divine decree. But again, as theologians wrestle with this, if God is sovereign, then if He's ordained it all, then how can He be sorry or grieve when tragedy strikes? Well, let's try to make sense of this together. Um, because many theologians, uh, and some people ask me as a side note, why don't you ever go to that side? Um, the light's a lot, a lot brighter on that side, so there's a real, my head's real shiny on that side. So anyway, that has nothing to do, but I, someone did ask me that week, like, why do you always go to that side and, and leave us alone over here? I love you over there, it's just my head's shiny on that side. But um, so, how could a sovereign God, how could He actually experience grief? How could He be sad? Well, because of so many theologians have been over the years and Bible translators, really going back to the second century, uh, the church fathers and so on, they've been influenced by Greek philosophy and in particular Aristotle's uh, unmoved mover, this idea that God is, God is this impersonal divine force who exists in heaven, who doesn't care, who never feels, who never grieves, who doesn't delight. Well, you know, a lot of theologians over the years have been unwittingly influenced by this and it shows up in, in their writings. And so you have this, again, this debate, and you do have those people who would say, many theologians who would say, God never experiences emotion, because emotions necessarily mean change. And God cannot change, because if He changes, then He either wasn't perfect before, or He, is, he was perfect and now He's not. And so you have these theologians say, that say, God never experiences any emotions. In fact, even the great Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century theologian, said, who can sanely say that God is touched by any misery? So you have that, and then there are some who say the passages that attribute emotion to God, what they do is they help us appreciate the priorities of God, but not the inner life of God. Uh, for example, in disciplining one of my children, um, you know, to carry that, to, to, to illustrate this, I might, if, I might pretend to be angry pretend to be really upset when I'm not really angry at all, but I want my, my son or daughter to realize the severity of their action. So I'm just sort of feigning wrath. Or uh, said another way, if one of my kids is really sad and depressed or, or grieving or having a really hard time, I might go and actually cry with them, but I myself am not feeling anything. I'm just doing that so they can relate to me. This is, this is the way that some actually understand. According to this view, when the Scripture says that God is angry, He's not really angry. He's just speaking in language that we can understand. But to me, this seems so hard to reconcile with those passages in Scripture. And the Scriptures are replete with these examples. When God says that He is actually feeling real emotion. When He says in Hosea that my heart recoils within me at the rejection and the idolatry of my people. We see in the Old Testament where God says, He says, my anger burns against this stiff-necked people. We say, I mean, surely... Surely that's real emotion. Uh, when God says in Genesis 6, He looks out on the depravity of mankind, He says, it grieves me at the heart level. I mean, surely this means something. Now, not everyone agrees. I told you the story a couple of years ago about Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's now he's a retired professor of uh, theology at Yale Divinity School. And he had a son by the name of Eric, and he and his son Eric were really close, and they loved being together and spending time together. And well, his son Eric uh, picked up this, uh, I guess, called a hobby of uh, of rock climbing. And so he wanted to take on the, the the steepest cliffs and so on. And 
one day, Eric, when he was 25, he said to his dad, he said, Dad, I'm going to go to Austria. I've got two friends. We're going to go to Austria, and we're going to climb, I don't know the name of it, this incredibly uh, steep cliff. And so, of course, Nicholas Wolterstorff in his late 50s said, or mid-50s said, That's not, I'm not going to go with you on this one. Well, he got a call at 2.30 on Sunday morning, four days after his son, Eric, 25 years old, and his friends went, uh, they went hiking and rock climbing. And the voice on the, on the other phone said, it grieves me to tell you this, but they had a freak accident, a loose rock, a loose boulder. Your son and his friends, they all died. And there were people who came around Dr. Wolterstorff and said, look, you know, God is there for you and you can go to him in prayer, but he doesn't, I mean, God doesn't feel anything. He's not hurting with you. And Wolterstorff, after much prayer and journaling, crushed by grief, he wrote this, this picture of God as unfeeling was impossible to accept, existentially impossible. I could not live with it. I found it grotesque. Now, of course, God is not defined by our feelings. We may feel a certain way about God, and that's actually not at all how He is. But I think we have to recognize that, that, that we have to take into consideration the whole biblical witness when we try to make any sort of assumptions about how God is, and certainly look at the way He reveals Himself. And the starting point, I think, for any discussion about God's emotions or His regret must begin with the recognition that God is utterly unlike us. Now, certainly we bear God's image. We reflect God's image. We're made in His image. But God is not like us in ways that are beyond even human comprehension. God is vastly different than we are. Uh, For example, God's knowledge is infinite. Our knowledge is very, very limited. God God knows it all. Uh, we, We just know what we can handle at any moment. We don't know what's going to happen today, this afternoon, tonight. God knows everything. God is indefatigable, which just means He never gets tired. He never runs out of energy. You know, I'll have to go home today. All I've done, I've stood up here and talked for 38 minutes twice. I'm going to have to go home and take a nap because I'm going to be tired. Our energy is constantly depleting. The world's energy is constantly depleting through entropy. And so, yeah, we run out of energy. God is everywhere at the same time. He's always present. He's omnipresent. You know, I mentioned we have three of our pastors who are now sidelined, quarantined with, with uh, either COVID or COVID exposure. I don't know where they are, but wherever they are, that's the only place they can be. They can't be a bunch of places at once. God is everywhere at the same time. He is meta- metaphysically, intellectually, ethically, and existentially different than we are. Unlike every created thing, God is self-sufficient. We are totally dependent on Him. As the Reformers said in in a bit of a metaphorical way, if God stopped thinking about us for a second, we would cease to exist. But God, He depends on no one. He doesn't rely on anyone. Whereas we desperately need Him for everything, God needs no one. Paul makes it clear in his discussion with the Athenians in Acts 17. He informs them that in Him... The living God of the Bible, we live and move and have our being. Likewise, to the believers at Colossae, uh, Paul presents Christ as the one in whom all things hold together. God has no body, but is a spirit. We suffer relentless illness and ultimately 
death because our physical bodies gradually wither and expire. And so in light of all of these differences, and I could go on and articulate many more of the differences between us and God, should it, should it surprise us that God's emotions are also different than ours? I don't believe it should. Here's our first point this morning. God has real emotions. His are the perfect expression of everything we feel. For example, we experience anger, so does God. But God's anger is righteous and holy, and is always manifest in a sinless way. We experience joy and delight, and so does God. God delights in the worship of His people. God takes joy in our humble faith in Him. We experience grief, and so does God. Although God's grief is, we might say, self-activated. It's not imposed on Him by anyone else. But, when God, uh, but God also experiences grief, but in a way very different than we do. Uh, we experience compassion. So does God. All of God's emotions are rooted in His holy character, His holy nature, and therefore they're always expressed sinlessly. Now, of course, there are some emotions that we experience that God's character won't allow Him to experience. For example, fear. God's never afraid. He's never been afraid. He will never be afraid. But we experience fear. Uh, Anxiety. God never experiences anxiety. He never experiences surprise. God's character will not allow that. So, So what does that mean for us this morning? Well, it means that we don't have a cold, distant, unresponsive, unmoved God, but instead a God who cares deeply for us, a God who feels for us, a God who is jealous over us, who delights in us with a deep passion. You don't think God is jealous. Go home and read those middle 40s chapters of Isaiah where God says, I will not yield my glory to another. God's jealous over His own glory. Uh, When you and I go to God in prayer and we cry out to Him, He's not some unblinking cosmic stare, as Dallas Willard said he was taught when he was growing up, but in fact, a real, loving, personal God. But this personal God does not change at the level of His being or character. And He makes that really clear to us. Scriptures are unmistakably clear. Malachi chapter 3, God Himself says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Or how about Numbers 23? God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So, you know, sometimes, and this is really something more in the Western world, on this side of the globe, we have this idea that this sort of either-or mentality, something has to be A or B, right? We have to figure it out. It has to be either A or either B. Well, this is really kind of a Western mindset that, that doesn't always apply to God. Sometimes we believe God has to be sovereign and, and, and holy and, un, and uh, unchangeable and immutable, or... He has to be vulnerable and emotional and, and mercurial and, and up and down. Well, no, it's, no it, it doesn't have to be. God is sovereign and immutable and impassable, but He still experiences real emotions. But of course, again, there are emotions very different 
than our emotions. When we grieve, we're responding to unforeseen events over which we have very little, if any, control. When God grieves, He responds to an event which He knew would happen, sovereignly decreed, and which He could have easily prevented had He so desired. There's an aspect of God's emotional life, of course, that will not be fully comprehended by us ever, our finite minds, but the tension is a little easier, I think, to manage, to appreciate when we consider that God is not changing internally when He experiences emotions, but evaluating different events in history as they unfold. And I thought, I really wrestled with what's the best way to illustrate this, and any, any analogy, of course, is going to break down on some level, but let me explain it like this. On Tuesday morning, every Tuesday morning in staff meeting, we plan out the whole worship service, everything. Everybody who's going to speak, what they're going to I mean, not every single word, but what they're going to say, what scripture will be read, of course, who's going to preach, what the passage is, what songs will be sung, who's going to lead out on the songs. So we, we plan the whole thing. We spend a lot of time planning and reflecting and so on on the whole thing. And during the planning, there's no emotion. I mean, nobody's getting emotional. I mean, our staff meeting, nobody's crying in our staff meetings typically, right? So sometimes Brand, Pastor Brandon, if we don't have a snack that he wants, he'll maybe throw a tantrum or something. Or sometimes, you know, Wendy, who's over our children, she'll start thinking about her husband, John, and she'll get a tear in her cheek and she'll just go on and on about how wonderful he is and so on. And so she may get emotional, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of emotion. We plan it all out. We know everything that's going to happen, every single thing. But then on Sunday, when we gather with God's people and we sing His praises together, and the Spirit of God is at work as God's people gather, and we hear the Word of God proclaimed, and we sing the great truths of God in song, and we enjoy the, we see the faces of the people we love, and we enjoy the fellowship with one another. Yeah, we have emotion. We experience joy, and we experience conviction, and we experience delight, and, and, and there are emotions that we experience even though nothing has happened that's different than what we've already planned. Now, again, I understand. You, you can pick apart that analogy, but I think it helps as we think about, we have to say it this way, in His infinite wisdom and grace, God created a world that He knew would grieve Him because of the sinfulness of mankind. So when we see in Genesis 6 that God is grieved to His heart, these are real emotions that, God, that accompany God's evaluation of what happens in history. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God is experiencing real sorrow, but it's very different than our sorrow or the way we experience sorrow. What about this, this God regretting? Well, the Hebrew word for regret is this, it's the same word that's also translated repent. And what, they're, what we're seeing is not, is not that God is, is regretting in the sense that He's thinking, well, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. No, it's saying, what it is, it's an indication that God is saying, I'm going to change my actions. I'm, in other words, I'm, going to, I'm not going to change. I'm going to act in a certain way. I'm going to, I'm going to proactively act in a certain way, right? And so this, the word, Hebrew word for repent is the word shuv, which means I was walking in one direction. I stopped, and I, I walked in a different direction. And this is not saying that God regrets or that God is, is, thinks He made a mistake or whatever, but He's saying, now I will act in this way. And, of course, we see the next couple of chapters are the flood where God would destroy, uh, virtually destroy the world. So to conclude from, and these are the two ditches I think we can veer off into. 
we can, we can veer off into the ditch, and this was a whole movement in the late or mid-90s called open theism. We can veer off into the ditch that says that in order for God to be uh, sovereign, He must be either um, just stoic and unmoved and, and unfazed and unfeeling, or He has to be vulnerable and open to the, the attacks and whatever the, of His people. And we say, no, God is sovereign. He's declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah 45. He's made it all clear. It's all part of His decorative will. Uh, but when things happen in history, God does respond uh, in a certain way with real passion. And again, I think the problem is when we try, to, we try to equate our feelings, our passions, with God's passions. What God actually warns against in the Psalms, He says this, You thought I was like you. I will reprove you and state the case before your eyes. So God's character never changes. He never changes in His nature or character. But that doesn't mean that He is completely emotionless or stoic or unfeeling. So here's our second point this morning. Because God's character is unchanging, so is His unfolding plan of salvation. So here we are toward the end of this calendar year, and we wonder, okay, what is next, right? I mean, when is the next shoe going to drop? When's the next surprise going to hit us? We have no idea. But we can know for sure that God has had this plan from all eternity to bring about salvation through the person and work of His Son. The first advent, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus sheds light on the second advent, the coming of Jesus to restore all things and make all things new. And nothing will ever change or alter God's plan. It might be easy to read Genesis 6 and think that there's that this particular time in history was unlike any other time in history. Things were so bad and things were so evil and things were so wicked that no other time in history has ever compared to that. But that's actually not right. This is simply a description of fallen humankind apart from God and His grace and a description of what happens when fallen mankind follows their own wisdom, their own logic, and their own ethics. So it doesn't mean that that was a really bad time, and since that time, things, things have gotten way better. It's not as though things were way worse then. One of the things I love about Christmas songs is the deep theology in many of them. And so we've sung them for so many years, some, some of us 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever, and so we, we can sometimes let the lyrics go, just kind of go right over our heads. But some of these old Christmas songs are really, really rich with theology. I mean, think about the song that we sang together today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. This is not talking about sort of the Noahic period or pre-flood. This is talking about contemporary world. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Or think about the beauty and depth of the great song, O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. To pine after something is to want it, to long for it. And so here they are, they're in sin, they're in error, and this is what they continue to go after till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Many of the uh, Christmas songs focus on this sense of longing, the sense of, of anticipation living in a broken and sin-cursed world, waiting, desperately longing 
for somebody to make things right, for somebody to turn this broken world upside down and bring about redemption. Our world is messed up, not just back then, but now. And I'm not just talking about the sin out there. I'm talking about the sin in here. I'm talking about our own sin tendencies. In fact, we, we enter the world, as we talked about last week, as God's enemies, as authority-threatened rivals of God. And that sin curse, that separation from God leads to all the things that we experience, loneliness and isolation, all consequences of sin, guilt and self-loathing, fear and anxiety. We know it in our hearts that something is wrong. We feel the exhaustion. We feel the guilt. We suffer the burden of our, our own emptiness. We, we know something is not right in the world. Well, what the world needs most is not good advice, not sound counsel, not education reform, not a better way to live. And those are all good things. But what the world needs most is to be reconciled to God. What the world needs most is forgiveness to be made right with God, to have our guilt and our shame wiped away. We need someone to do what we can never do, and that is to bring us to God. We need a rescuer. This freedom from the depths of the grave and uh, Satan's tyranny and O come, O come, Emmanuel, this thrill of hope and O holy night, it's only thrilling to those who understand the darkness of their own situation. To them, the light is life-giving. As I said last week, the Christian faith is not for the strong. It's not for the independent, the self-reliant, those who have it all together. It's for the weak. It's for the broken. It's for the independent. It's for the desperate. For those who know, there's no way that I could ever save myself. This infinite chasm that exists between God and me, I cannot remedy. I cannot alleviate on my own. I need someone to come. I need someone to bring me to God. Well, this is the beauty of Christmas, isn't it? God doesn't say, I'm going to come halfway down to you. You work your way up to the rest of me. No, Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. God come down to us. Not just to live the life that we were called to live but failed, although he certainly did that. He came not just to be born but to die. To die for our our sin, to suffer the penalty for our rejection, our rebellion against God. He came to save us from our sin and, in fact, to reconcile the whole world to God, the entire cosmos. This is why the Christmas songs implore us to rejoice. Again, that beautiful first advent, Advent, Jesus Christ, come to earth, God in the flesh. It sheds light on and points to the second advent, the coming, the return of Jesus when He will restore all that's wrong with this sin-cursed world. The return of Jesus, even though no one knows when it is, the time of it or the day, it is just as certain as the rising of the sun because God cannot be acted upon by His creatures. God cannot change His plan because His creatures inflict some sort of turmoil on Him. God is never surprised by any outcome. Even the aspects of God's plan yet to unfold should be viewed by us as complete. This is the way the New Testament writers look at it. And in an age and in a year in particular where nothing seems certain and it's just one curveball after another, this offers great hope and comfort for beleaguered believers like me. 
Now, there's one other aspect to this impassibility of God that I want to point out, which I think is also very faith-strengthening to us. Because of God's impassibility, His unchanging character, not only can we be sure that His plan will never change, but we can also be sure that His love for us will never change. Have you ever thought about this? When God sent His Son, He had already existed for eternity. So there was no be, there's no beginning with God. He, he was never created. He never began. He always is. And so when God sent His Son, this is after billions and billions of years in which He could have changed the plan. He, he could have altered the plan. He had billions of years to do so. And you know how we are, how I am. If I've got a lot of time to think about a decision, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and forth, deliberate, vacillate. I'm going to, I could, you know, this whole paralysis by analysis, I'm going to analyze it. I'm going to get out my piece of paper and do the old T-chart, the pros and the cons, and all those things. So God certainly had time to change His plan. He had all the time in the world, literally. But He's not the least bit deterred. He doesn't scratch, deviate, alter His plan. And it was, by all accounts, a very painful plan. Yes, the Son suffered a cruel death on the cross, but the Father also suffered. The Father poured out His wrath on His perfect Son so that we, by believing in Him, could actually have eternal life and be forgiven. A great Scottish theologian talks about how on the cross, God the Son brought suffering into the Godhead. It's really a fascinating read. Well, with billions of years to reflect on this plan, why did God ultimately go through with it? Because of His steady, unchanging, indescribable love for mankind. First John tells us this, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's our final point this morning. The greatest ever display of generosity, God's gift of His Son, proves the Father's unchanging love. You know, they say that the best way to learn something is to teach because you put in the preparation and you have to make sure you understand the, the subject matter and so on. And, uh, and I found this to be true, and you probably have too, whether you teach at home or at work or school or whatever, but you, you learn better when you're teaching. Well, when I was preaching through John's gospel throughout all of 2019 and a little bit of 2020, one of the things that stood out to me was not only the number of times that Jesus talk, tells His disciples specifically that He loves them, which He does repeatedly, but also when Jesus says to them, and the Father also loves you. I remember coming across that in John 16 and really being stunned by that. Why does Jesus have to reiterate to His disciples that the Father also loves them? Well, it's because I think we, we, we have no doubt believing that Jesus loves us. He died for us. So we say, yeah, we, we believe that. But when it comes to God the Father, I think we sometimes think, well, His love is based on our behavior. We, you know, sometimes He loves us, but, but sometimes He doesn't really love us because of some sin we've committed. And, and yet we know that He kind of loves us, but we know we have to hold on to that. We have to earn that love. We have to keep that love. We can even maybe mess around and lose that love. But that's not the way it works. The Father's love is steadfast, immovable, unchanging, and He shows that by sending His Son. I, I posted this on Facebook a couple months ago, but I think this is the most beautiful explanation of this by the great John Owen, who writes this, The love of God is like Himself, 
equal, constant, not capable of increase or decrease. The Father's love is equal, meaning that those whom He loves, He loves them to the end. And He loves them always alike. On whom He fixes His love, it is immutable. It doth not grow to eternity. It is not diminished at any time. It is an eternal love that had no beginning, that shall have no ending, that cannot be heightened by any act of ours, that cannot be lessened by anything in us. There are times when we may not feel like God loves us. There are times when maybe we we get caught up in a sin pattern or we've just unleashed some sort of anger at our spouse or kids or failed in a particular way or whatever it is, and we don't really feel like God loves us. But see, our feelings can deceive us. Our feelings are actually not faithful. They're not reliable. We have to always defer to what God says and what He says about Himself. And the the overall witness of Scripture, this big story of God's plan to save a lost and sin-cursed world through His Son, reveals to us a love for His own that never, never changes. It never changes, regardless of what we do or don't do. For those who are in Christ, God's love is always secure. And I think what that means for us, I mean, here we are in what we call the most wonderful time of the year. And, and, and by, you know, by all accounts, there are some really wonderful things about this time of year. I love the holiday season. I love Christmas season. Um, this is a great time of year. But we also have to understand It's not the most wonderful time of year for everyone, and it's not even the most wonderful time for us all the time. There are people, we read reports, during the holiday season, during the Christmas season, loneliness skyrockets. Depression, it it just goes up at this alarming pace. People, the conflicts between family members actually become more and more intense. Uncertainty over the future. All of these things are often magnified, and so it is a wonderful time of year, but it's a time of exhaustion. It's a time of guilt. You know, how can I spend the right amount of time with this family and that family? We, we, Janine and I uh, FaceTimed our oldest son and his wife in Southern California, and, and I could tell just by talking, they want so badly to please both families, and one's in Illinois, and one's obviously in Huntsville, and so they're like, but we want to, you know... We have these expectations and pressures, and all of these things are actually magnified during the holidays. But how encouraging to know, and how heartening to know, that in this time, with pressure and and, and travel and all these things, that God's love for us is secure. He loves us with a love that will never change. And His plan to bring salvation to the world through His Son will never, ever change. He'll never deviate from it. He has a plan to restore all the world, to make right everything that's wrong, to restore in a million ways what's wrong with this world, bring about total and complete shalom, total healing, total peace. And this is what God will do. But this love that we're talking about, this unchanging familial love, is reserved for those who belong to Him. God has a special love for those who belong to Him. It's the love as a father has for a son or a daughter. It doesn't have to be earned, but it does have to be received by faith. And maybe you're here this morning, and as we've looked at this passage of Scripture, the Spirit of God has worked in you, and you realize 
you don't, you're not really loved by God in the way we describe because you've never turned from your own sin and your own self-salvation project and actually cried out to God in faith. You've never trusted in the cross work of Jesus as your only hope for salvation. You may have professed Christ as Lord and maybe you're here worshiping and raising your hands, but the reality is what you're depending on is your own goodness, your own efforts, your own family, your own whatever. God says this love, it's, it's indiscriminate in that it's available to all who will repent and believe, but it's a love that is special for those who are within, within His family. And I pray this morning that as the Spirit works, if you are in Christ, He will reassure you of the depth, as Paul says, the depth, the height, the width of the love of God in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you don't know God, you've never turned to Jesus Christ in faith, that you will receive that love by turning to the one who died on the cross by God's loving and gracious design. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your love. We thank you this morning that, yes, you are a God of wrath and a God of judgment and a God of holiness, but you've not left us here as separated, sin-cursed, rebellious people on our own to kind of figure things out. You have come down to us, Emmanuel, God with us. You've not said, I'll save you 50% if you can contribute the other 50. You've not said, I'll come down two rungs of the ladder if you'll make it up the other eight. You have come all the way down to save us. And Father, we praise you for that and we ask that you would stir our souls with incredible hope for the future because of the love that you have demonstrated to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.
Oh, thank you again, worship team. Uh, well, you know, we've talked about how, cha- how plans, plans must change. They have changed. Uh, but even during a pandemic, of course, ministry goes on. And through your faithful giving, uh, we are partnering with and assisting and working with missionaries all around the world. So I want you to know as you continue to give, uh, even as you consider a year-end gift, uh, maybe through a bonus you get at work or whatever, I want you to know that your gifts, your faithfulness goes to help people in the Middle East and in South America and in uh, Africa and other places, even through Samaritan's Purse, we are partnering with ministering and assisting uh, global missionaries all around the world. So I'm grateful for that. There are five, I don't know, we we say a different number every week, three, four, five. There are a number of ways you can give. You can try any of those ways. Uh, They all work. And uh, I want to thank you again for your continued faithfulness. If you're here and the Lord is working on you, um, I'll be around. I'll have my mask on. I'll be at the front. I'd love to talk with you. You can email me. My email is on the, uh, is on the website. Um, let me see how well our kids were listening. So you guys can shout out the answer here. Does God ever change? No. Does He love you? Yes, He does. Outstanding. All right, let me send you out with a benediction from uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13. He says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Have a great day.